strictly legal. Osgood Professional Development's podcast about all things legal. Each week, we unpack issues currently affecting the legal landscape with the help of some of the industry's leading thinkers. This week, the justice we seek. Part two of our interview with Elliot Bahar. And now your host, Amy Turhart. In part two, entitled The Justice We Seek, Elliot continues to share about what's driving his passion now and what's next. He details his experience prosecuting war crimes involving ethnic cleansing in Kosovo in 1999, of the mass forced deportation, mass murder, and massive sexual assault, and how this informs his view of justice. He describes a lot of this in his book, Tell It to the World. The story starts on April 5, 1999, when Serbian police find a truck half-submerged in the Danube River filled with human bodies. The book continues to detail the lengths taken to transport and conceal these dead bodies from the world. The story isn't just the story of what unfolded, but it's Elliot's own story about his own discovery of the full picture and his investigation and prosecution of the chief architects of the ethnic cleansing of Kosovo. In Tell It to the World, he examines the causes and consequences of mass violence and identifies a powerful but disturbing connection between the justice we seek and the injustices that we commit. For those of us who haven't heard about this book, Elliot, perhaps share a little bit with our listeners about what made, motivated and inspired you to share in this comprehensive of a way. What did you learn about the practicalities and about how the trials work, the process that's involved? Maybe just share some of your reflections about that with our listeners. I mean, it's such a fascinating process to be part of the the war crimes trial process. Um, And for so many reasons, there is so much that's loaded onto these trials in terms of their historical importance, their sort of direct importance and bearing on the countries that they impact, and then the symbolic importance that they have. And and all this is loaded onto... Uh, a trial process, and people come to that process with really high expectations um, for what that process should look like. And that's true of the international community broadly. It's true of, um, you know, victims and survivors um, and the communities that have been impacted by the events. But it's also directly true for the witnesses who you bring to come and testify. And so, you know, working as a prosecutor, um, at the ICTY was sort of, I mean, it was this, this fascinating experience, but when you're in it, I mean, it just happens so quickly. It's like, you know, and, and I got, I got there and I think within two months, less than two months, we were off and running our, this huge trial. Um, and it was about a two year case. We're prosecuting the, um, former head of the Serbian police, essentially like a chief of of Serbian police for this um, huge set of crimes um, involving the ethnic cleansing of Kosovo in 1999. So, you know, mass murder across all these different municipalities across Kosovo, uh, forced deportation of um, hundreds of thousands of people forced across the borders and, you know, forced out of their homes and internally displaced, massive sexual assault. Uh, so these these huge crimes uh, and the... So one of the crimes that he directly oversaw was that um, when the Serb forces were committing these crimes, they were also 
um, directly hiding them. So they were engaged in this huge cover-up operation where they would, um, you know, after a massacre was committed, they would take the bodies, um, in many cases load them directly into trucks, in other cases they would bury them temporarily and then uh, literally dig the bodies out of the ground again, load them into trucks, and drive them hundreds of kilometers away um, and hide them outside of Kosovo. And it took years and years to unravel this cover-up campaign. And, I mean, for the people who remember um, in 1999, I mean, the world was watching what was happening in Kosovo. NATO went to war and bombed uh, Kosovo and bombed Serbia. Uh, and so people were watching, uh, and there were all these sort of, you know, as Kosovo Albanians were flooding across the borders, they were telling the stories of what was happening, but the evidence was being hidden. And so um, our case was really, um, it was about establishing, proving all these crimes, but also about unwinding this cover-up. And so um, it was, I mean, I was sort of nose down in this for two years, and it's this, you know, fascinating, very intense experience where the witnesses are coming, and they're coming one after the other with these unbelievable stories of survival and loss and you know they have these expectations of the process and an understanding of what it means and what it can mean for them um and then there's also the perpetrators and you know as a prosecution team we called um, a number of perpetrators as our own witnesses and so in some cases you're sitting in a room just like this room and you're sitting with uh, perpetrator, someone you know who's been directly involved in committing these crimes, and sometimes they're sometimes they'll help your case willingly, sometimes not so willingly. But in all cases, you're sort of there and speaking to them, and so you know there are all these thoughts that you have, and you know these, you know, I, of course, was very reflective about you know the these sorts of crimes, and you, you know to go back to sort of the psychology we talked about earlier. But I'm you know reflecting on the psychology of the perpetrators as well and how do you justify these types of just unimaginably horrible crimes um and so you know it wasn't until sometime after i left that i really thought you know i i felt like a, a, there was like a book burning in me like i really wanted to tr to share these things but i also wanted to sort of try to unpack and understand it for myself and really kind of dive into um, the psychology of justification and mass violence and understand it in this in this specific specific factual context. And so that's really what the book was born from. And then it was, you know, a process of two or three years um, to write it. Wow. It's I mean, you you go through, you know, details like viewing you know, grainy video evidence and having that form the, the center point of, of the trial to, you know, big thoughts around justice and what that means and what we're trying to accomplish and what this utopia of justice looks like and how we provide justifications for ourselves and others in the name of justice. Maybe you could touch a little bit on, the, on, on those thoughts that you share in the book. So one of the things that I found myself thinking about a lot was um, I think you know, when we come to this type of mass violence, this sort of, you know, terrible event um, as war crimes prosecutors, I think there's often this perception that, like, we are, we are shining the light of justice into the darkness. Like, we are bringing justice to a place where it never existed. It didn't exist before. Um, but what you, you start to 
see is you spend time either like sitting with perpetrators, interviewing perpetrators, or listening to them argue their case. Um, in our case, um, you know, as as the defense did, you start to see that the perpetrators are them themselves very much in the thrall of their own notions of justice, and that they see themselves as the victims of injustice, often historical injustice and contemporary injustice, and they see themselves as victims. And that sense of injustice and victimization can become and tends to become the justification for committing these horrible acts that we all would know without that are terribly wrong. And so this is something that I I found myself thinking about a lot while I was there and when I was listening to perpetrators explain, you know, either justify what they'd done or explain it away or feel completely righteous um, with the fact that they've committed these horrible crimes. And I, I mean, it's it was the case then and it is still the case now that most of these, like perp, where you have war crimes committed, um, the perpetrators, while they may be prosecuted in an international court, are often viewed as heroes back home. Um, and so, you know, this was very true of the events in the former Yugoslavia. But as you look across, you know, our sort of recent like 20th century history of violence and genocide and crimes against humanity, you can see these very same patterns. I mean, every time you can find an act of genocide, um, you can find these very same mechanisms of justification where the perpetrators and the people, not even just the people who commit the crimes, but the people who assist them and believe in them and give them their popular base of support are in the, th the thrall of these uh, beliefs in justice and believing that they're victims. And so a lot of this criminal, this sort of awful behavior is actually a sort of justice-seeking behavior. Um, and I think that was really, it, really understanding that and sort of digging deeper into it, I think really changed the way that I see a lot of violence um, and what enables it. I think it's quite a sobering, uh, difficult, lesson and and i think so i mean now i think about like th there are a lot of dangers in this very human drive for justice that we all have and i think you can see that in the very sort of big maybe biggest stage of you know looking at genocides but it's also true on an individual level right this believing that you have been wronged and therefore you are entitled to do things that you would not otherwise be morally entitled to do and in fact maybe maybe compelled and would and feel morally righteous in doing those things that's an extremely dangerous mechanism and an extremely dangerous part of human behavior and i don't think we've really understood that and i think you know when i look around today the things that divide us as a society globally um, I think this, these mechanisms of justice and injustice and the, this drive for justice can be really destructive and it's pulling us apart. And I think the, the sooner and the better we're able to recognize that, then the better we can deal with it. We take as our mantra for, you know, what it is that we care about in this, you know, n normative sense of right and wrong, like doing justice and loving mercy. So what is the relationship between those two um you know ideals and how do we in practice begin to start 
you know, doing, if you will, justice? How do we mm-hmm. do it? So, I mean, justice is a really difficult, interesting, kind of challenging word. Because when you when I say justice, there is the word is loaded with this positive connotation to the point where it's actually very difficult to imagine there being anything negative about justice, <laughs> right? right? If course. I we, we think that the negative what would be negative about justice would be justice being frustrated, would be not pursuing justice. That's what's sort of uh, th- that's what would the tragedy would be. Um, but it has this really dangerous component where once we convinced ourselves that we have been the victim of an injustice, then it becomes the, it, it sort of change, changes our moral scope, our moral approach. Um, and so, I mean, I think often when we talk about justice, and I really, I really think that we've misunderstood the entire human drive for justice and, and what it means. I think often when we talk about justice, we actually mean things like equality, right? So, um, you know, Martin, Martin Luther King, who fought for justice, absolutely, but he was fighting for also very specific principles, equality, I think, chief among them. There's another sense of justice, though, and what we mean, where what we mean is a sense of a recompense to which we are morally entitled. And I mean, it's interesting because people will often say, well, no, that's revenge. I'm talking about justice. And I think the truth is, I think it may be that the biggest difference between justice and revenge is that we know that revenge is wrong and that we think uh, in a very automatic, intuitive sense that justice-seeking behavior is morally correct. And so, sure, that can be the case, but it can all, that drive can lead us badly astray. And I think when we look at things like, you know, this has changed the way that I think about our criminal justice system because I think that we often naturally think about our domestic criminal justice system as being the system that seeks justice. But I think if if we're really thinking about the justice systems that work the best around the world and when the Canadian justice system works its most effectively, the justice system is actually exerting a sort of restraining impulse onto this drive for justice where we say, okay, this person has been wrong. This family has had uh, a child murdered. Um, And that is taken out of the hands of the family and given to this objective, um, formal, uh, you know, truth-seeking and sort of slower and more cautious process that takes that on. And so there is a role to seek justice and see that justice is done, but it's it's conducted in a very sort of thoughtful and measured way that weighs against these very dangerous impulses. And I think that uh, it it can be very dangerous to lose sight of that. Yeah, and I think it's really important to um, contemplate what that means, especially um, when we begin a conversation around access to justice. So identifying justice is one thing, and then facilitating access to it is another. And it's a narrative that is found its way um, into a lot of the the driving force of new technology in particular with regard to facilitating access to justice. And I think we need to be very mindful about what our intention is and what do we actually mean when we have that conversation. What are your thoughts around, you know, firstly, the difficulty in identifying what justice means in a procedural sense and, you know, facilitating access to it for a broader population? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot to unpack there because when we talk about justice, we mean we also mean access to fairness and due process. And it is unjust. It would be unjust if only certain people in our society have access to those mechanisms. I think it's also an interesting question, though. Like whenever we talk about justice, there are the things that our justice system can specifically capture. And then there's so much outside of that. And it's, you know, when you talk about international criminal justice, this becomes very apparent, although it's, I mean, it's true in the domestic setting as well. But I mean, once you start your job as a criminal prosecutor, society has failed. The crime has happened. And so there is an important job to do. And you need to do that job fairly so that you don't create further injustices. Um, but the the failure has already happened. And so, you know, in some of the international criminal work that I do now and the, the human rights work I do now, there's, I mean, it really raises a lot of interesting questions around, well, how do you achieve these just outcomes? How do you prevent these types of things from happening again? And an international criminal prosecution can be part of that strategy, but it will only ever be part of it. And often it's a small part. Um, and, and I think that's true domestically as well. I mean, there are certain, there's a certain role that the justice system um, needs to fulfill, but so much of what, what is most important exists outside of that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's it's difficult today to think of access to justice outside of a technological, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, push to to making that real and and possible for the broader population. You also have a strong interest in technology, um, cybersecurity. Um, how does that play into um, the work that you do now? So, I, I mean, it's been interesting because in a lot of ways, I mean, in some ways, th- my technology work developed along like a parallel track like there wasn't a lot of overlap but now I can definitely see the overlap in the ways that they inform each other Um, one of the things that's so fascinating about working in tech and working for a company like Apple or some of the companies that I work for uh, work with now um, is that they're I mean the approach to innovation the way that these companies function and the effectiveness which with not only with which they function but the ways that they they change the world um it's i mean it's been fascinating to see and i you know when i arrived at apple in 20 really very beginning of 2013 i'd only like at least as a lawyer i'd only ever worked for the government or for the un and both are very large bureaucratic slow-moving um, institutions both did, you know, in my, in my case, did very important, meaningful work. Um, but there's not uh, there's not a lot of change or innovation happening, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to shift gears like this and go to a company like Apple. Um, but you know, it's one thing to think about innovation and know that it's important. It's another thing to see and feel up close what it's like to be in that environment. And I mean, that definitely has impacted the way that I the way that I think about work, the sort of sorts of expectations that I have for myself and the way that I think about problems and problem solving. And there's some very interesting things that made a big impression on me very quickly after arriving at Apple. I mean, from from little things like the fact that um, 
I was used to being in environments where people will tell you, if you have a new idea, people will tell you immediately. It's like the gut response to tell you why you can't do it. Oh, wait, well, no, but you can't do that right, because of, course. of this, because of that. <laughs> That's not how we do things here. Here are all the problems. And at Apple, it's almost the opposite. If someone has an idea and says, this is what we're going to do, this is what I'd like to do, no one comes out of the gate saying no. If you say no, which you can say, it's not like you can't say no, but if you say no, it's about what are you counter offering? What, what else can you do to achieve that objective? How do you want to do it? Um, and, and so everything from that to, I mean, in some ways, the sort of casualness with, with which the company achieves these massive transformative impacts on the world also kind of makes an impression. Something I think probably distinctively American about that too, right? The, the casualness with which they're like, let's, let's roll out a product everywhere in the world that will change the way people do like do business and live their lives and then they just do it um and you see that now i mean for you know other companies that i work with now like airbnb for example it's just like for companies that basically didn't exist 10 years ago to companies that completely transformed the world um and and there's a lot there in terms of the the ways that you can achieve change and the way you can do it in a sort of in a replicable way right i mean these are profit making businesses and i mean i'm still a believer in regulation and responsible regulation but these are businesses that um really achieve change in a way that like people m buy into so um it's i mean it's been incredibly interesting to see that and i'm you know i'm so interested now in this sort of the ways that you know, human rights and justice and and the ways that that those values and those approaches can interact with technology and the sort of innovation and disruption that we're seeing across the economy. And that's a big switch. I mean, human rights and technology. I was first introduced to you through um, asking your advice um, to comment on a potential data breaches and cybersecurity program that Osgood Professional Development is thinking of um, excuse me, that we'll, we'll offer in the, in the near future. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I came to learn about your, your unique background and your experience as a um, war crimes prosecutor. And, I mean, cybersecurity is fairly specific. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem always related to human rights. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how did you gain experience um, and start a, a, a practice, you know, offering those types of services? Mm -hmm. um, to tech companies. So, I mean, when I got this job, so my, my at Apple, I was security counsel. So I was basically responsible for um, handling and advising the company on criminal and security issues cast very broadly as they would impact the company. So that could be anything from cyber attacks. And, you know, if you're Apple, you're, of course, getting targeted all the time. And also your suppliers are getting targeted and, and breached. And so you need to deal with that. You need to understand what happened. And then in a very practical way, you need to figure out, OK, what are the facts? How do we work together? How do we work with the business to decide what our response will be? Do we work with law enforcement? If we do, is it the FBI? Is it you know other foreign authorities? Um, and how do we best work with them? And so all of that work really drew very well um, on my um, criminal background, which I would not necessarily have I mean, I didn't think, you know, when I was a prosecutor that I I could just transition into a company like Apple, but um, it actually fit quite well. Um, and then, of course, you know, part of my role at Apple was also looking at all these other sorts of criminal issues that would hit the company, everything from like big, you know, fraud rings to um, IP 
theft, you know, protecting all these new products Apple has that are, you know, in development and very sensitive, confidential. Uh, and it's a very global company. So um, it turned out that that, I mean, I don't think that there was any one skill set that would have been the perfect fit for that job, but I think my background helped a lot. And it was one thing I've found very encouraging to see is that I think it, I've seen a lot in the Bay Area in particular that there is an openness to people who come with different backgrounds and skill sets and have done very interesting things. Toronto, I think, is you, I, when I came back, the I see I can see the the legal culture is still quite conservative here, um, and that's been it's been interesting to sort of readjust to that. <sighs> um, but I th I think people would like that to change. But I think like a lot of things, they don't. Um, a lot of people have been in it their whole lives don't see why it's conservative or what they're missing. Um, but, you know, I think that's changing and there are a lot of demands on the legal profession now to change and to do things differently. So they're feeling it from outside and having to adjust. Absolutely. Um, if we could have a whole other broadcast just, <laughs> yeah. on, just on this topic alone, this is something that's near and dear to my heart personally. Um, what's next for you? Where do you see yourself what what passions will you follow in the future? It seems to date that you've done a really good job of, you know, instilling a sense of curiosity within your own life and your own career and following the passions and interests that um, that you have. So, you know, what's driving you now? What's next? So I think, I mean, I've always found it in, when I look back at my career, I think I've been served well just, and frankly, whether it was intentional all the time or, just something I'm driven to do anyway, just by pursuing the work that I find most interesting and most meaningful. And so I have my own practice now, which has given me, um, it's been great. I mean, I actually expected it would be, uh, you know, there's still some adjustments to sort of figuring out how you work within this framework, but it kind of let me hit the ground running in pursuing the technology interests I have and also continuing to do the international human rights work and so um, and sometimes it's kind of a fascinating transition between the two I mean I had la literally last month I went from I was on the ground in Iraq for 10 days doing um, international criminal like advising and then back for four days and right to San Francisco um, working with Airbnb um, and sort of on site there and those are I mean, they are kind of two completely different things, but um, they're two things that I'm excited about, and I think that they do inform each other. And so, I, I mean, I hope and expect to continue doing this type of work, but I can also, I mean, there are so many really interesting ways in which, I, you know, we, we can talk about technology law, but in a sense, everything is technology now, right? And so... And, and this is where all the sort of innovation and disruption and, uh, you know, the change is coming from at very rapid clip in, I mean, in our society, but uh, around the world. And so there are a lot of very interesting and direct areas where the two areas of like technology and data and um, data strategy intersect with sort of human rights and, you know, obviously the broader goals of human rights, which are to make the world a better, more fair and, and um, safe place. So that's everything from, you know, l what does it look like to police human rights on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, for example, or Google? Um, what, what are the future, what is the future of AI and 
what are the sort of tools that we can bring to that um, to regulate it, to understand it? What are the values? You know, and there, so there, there are a lot of ways in which these worlds intersect. And I think, you know, the other part of my career that, I mean, I don't know how much of this is intentional and how much is just me as well, but I've always also been interested in the bigger picture, which is why I write and I continue to write. And so that also leads you to some different interesting places and it lets me dig a little deeper on, you know, how things connect, why things work the way they do. And that's something I'll continue to do as well. Um, Good, because I mean, you're, you're a fantastic <laughs> author. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. What advice could you give our listeners, um, you know, practical steps that they can take to um, make real for themselves what you've, you've made real in following your own passion? I mean, that, this is a, a tough question, right? It I is mean, very tough. I, I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, yeah, so. no, but it's but. a good question. I mean, I think, like, to be honest, I think the, the biggest thing is to continue to ask yourself this, but to ask yourself in a way that you're not sort of just tearing your hair out, like sort of torturing yourself about what you're doing, but to think about the sorts of, like, actionable steps you can take to do things you're interested in. I mean, it it's always served me well to just do the things that I'm interested in, um, not always at the expense of, um, you know, my job, for example, but, you know, writing. You write because you are interested in writing. Writing a book doesn't pay much. It's not going to be like a full um, career, but it's something I believe in doing um, and so you, you, I did it on in addition to the other work I was doing, and it never felt like a chore because I loved it. I mean, that book was it sort shows, of burning yes. in me. But <laughs> so fantastic. Yeah, but I mean, I would also there's another piece of advice which I'd give, which maybe seems counterintuitive because I think it's very common for people to say like, just do what you love, and you know, if you love your job, that's you never work a day in your life, and that that type of thing. But it's it's usually not that easy, and the truth is, it's it's often the case that the things you will be most passionate about don't pay very well, right? I mean, and sometimes you can find paying work um, that you really enjoy, and I've been fortunate to find some of that on the technology side. Um, but I mean, the other thing I've uh, like, I, I think it's funny, you know, when I look back at myself when I was 22. And I think about the person who wanted to be a writer. And I think, okay, well, I could have made the decision then, okay, now I, this is my passion. I just want to write. I'm not going to go to law school. I'm not going to do any of these things. I'm just going to write. And for some people, that is a fine decision and it works out. But I know that the right decision for me was to recognize, no, I don't just need to do that. I don't just need to declare myself a writer and ex accept that this is my identity and I'm not going to do anything else. I also care a lot about law and justice and this sort of broad scope of things I could accomplish in law school. And so that's been really meaningful to me um, on the, you know, and, and that's true of the, you know, so when I'm doing technology work, but then, you know, find an international human rights project that I can do. I mean, I don't need to just sit and wait for the next, you know, mission that comes up because it can be a while, right? Yes, I mean, it's hard. Yes. And so um, I, I think that's also served me really well is to recognize like, no, you continue, like you don't just need to do one thing. Um, I think it also, 
you know, like we can get a little lost, I think, sometimes in questions of identity and like, what am I? Am I a writer? Am I a worker? And like you do, you know, especially in this day, I think it's become so common now that people want to they want to tell your story. And how do we tell your story? And then, you know, those sorts of narratives can be valuable, but they can also be kind of confining. Um, and so. Yeah, I think like the biggest, adv really the biggest advice that I have for anyone and particular for anyone coming out of law school is like to do things, to do the things that you're excited about. And that doesn't mean you have to put the practical stuff on hold and you may have to wait. It may be a while before you get your paying legal career to the point where that's the absolutely meaningful um, be all and end all for you. But there are so many different things that we can do and that we can pursue. And I think that's always worked out very well for me. Thank you so much for sharing, Elliot. Where can our listeners, um, I guess, reach you on Twitter? It's at Elliot Bahar mm -hmm. um, is probably the best place to follow. Yep. And also, um, I'll provide the link also for the book, Tell It to the World, um, which outlines, you know, your incredible experience um, at the uh, pro prosecuting war crimes. Thank you so much, Elliot, for joining us over these two episodes. Thank you so much Thanks. for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Strictly Legal. To browse our catalog of continuing legal education opportunities, please visit us at www.osgoodpd.ca.